Good morning. How's everybody doing? Y'all stoked to be here? I know I am. Hey, my name's Patrick. I'm the youth pastor. So if you're looking for Frank, he's around here somewhere. Um, but he is not preaching this morning. I am. Uh, Jason introduced me via prayer. I've never had that happen to me before. Like he prayed for me in his prayer. Anyway. Um, we're going to be in First Peter. That's the book that we have been in. We're going to continue on. We'll be in chapter 2. Uh, I grew up going to church. Most of the time, it was me and my three brothers playing tic-tac-toe on the bulletin. You know what I'm talking about, right? And when we ran out of space, we would get into all those cards in the pew back in front of us, the giving stuff and all of that. We'd pull that out and we'd keep playing tic-tac-toe. Usually, I won. It was no, actually. It's not true. It was. They were all cat games. All of them. Nobody ever won. My parents would, you know, nudge us, tell us to be quiet. And so from a very young age, I began to develop an understanding of what the church was. See, today you guys have phones. Look at me, kids. You guys, you don't play tic tac toe. Just get on your phone. Don't do that. Not while I'm preaching. Um. But yeah. So. Uh, I will say this, though. Over the course of my life, there were some very serious times where I understood who I was in Christ and what that meant in the context of the church. But those were few and far between if I'm looking at those kind of younger to teenage years. I don't think I stopped playing tic-tac-toe until I was around 19. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but it was about two or three years after Michelle and I got married. So I was around 22 or 23 we started attending a church plant not far from our house in New York. And the pastor would ask the same question week in and week out. He would say, where have you seen Jesus alive and working in your life this past week? Now, there were a few enough of us that if you didn't answer, everybody knew. And the question itself didn't frustrate me, but my struggling to answer that question week in and week out was concerning. At the time, I was a young dad. I was a young uh, husband. I was working full-time. I was driving a delivery truck. I was taking night classes to finish my undergrad. I was busy, and I remember that question used to linger in the back of my mind because I remember thinking, if Jesus is the bedrock of my foundation and he is who, like, who I am is because of him, then why am I having such a hard time looking back over the last six days and see him alive and working in my life. And I think as I reflect back on those times, the reason I struggled with that is because I had a misunderstanding during that time of who I was in Christ and what that meant in the context of the church. And I think that there are a lot of Christians today who live in that same misunderstanding. And so as we jump into 1 Peter chapter 2, our goal, really our goal this morning, is to be reminded who we are and why we're different. Uh, last week, Frank said this, and I quote, he said, the gospel isn't only about your destination, it's also about your journey. He said that, I was in the 11 o'clock service, so if he didn't say it in the 9.30, I apologize. But he said it in the 11, and I wrote it down because I thought that was an important statement. But what Frank was talking about in the context of the message that he was preaching in First Peter was about the individual, the individual's journey. 
And right now, Peter transitions and he starts talking about the church body collective, our journeying together, us following Christ together. And so my first point as we come into verse 4 and 5 is this. Everything we do should come out of who we are as the church. Everything we do should come out of who we are as the church. Peter starts here in verse 4. He says, as we come to him, the living stone. And so that's as we come to Jesus. And whether that be in a sense of salvation, like the first time you're coming to Jesus, or whether that be the over and over repetition of relationship. So there are many of you in this room who have been in Christ for several years. And right now, you're, you're coming to him. You're glorifying his name. You're praising his name. And you're coming to him over and over again in this sense of a relationship. And we acknowledge him as the living stone. So I imagine as Peter is writing this, I don't know about you, but I remember college. I'm not that far removed from seminary. And so when I had to write papers, you have to, um, you have to kind of like back your argument and bring things in, right? And so Peter uh, is what he's doing here is... He's bringing in the Old Testament imagery. And we're going to read that in a second. But I have to imagine that as Peter is writing this, he's thinking about a conversation that he had with Jesus. And we read that in Matthew chapter 16. It's this conversation, it's well known. It's when Jesus looks at Peter and he says, you are the rock. Peter, you are a rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. That's a debated passage throughout time. Um, Many think that Peter was the rock that Christ was going to build his church on. But I think it's interesting that now Peter, in writing his own letter to the people spread out around the, the Roman provinces, he says, he declares Jesus as the living stone. The one rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God. And he goes on to say that we also are living stones. So he says, Jesus is the living stone and we are living stones. We are likened to Christ himself. He says we're being built into this spiritual house or this temple where the stones stacked upon each other. But we have to have six feet of mortar between us now because of the... (laughs) Sorry. Anyway, uh, we're we're the stones. We're being stacked on each other. And in 2017, uh, Michelle and I went to Israel. I'm going to throw a picture up here. And one of the evenings in Jerusalem, we got to go down underground and see the foundation stones that the Temple Mount is built on, and that is one massive stone. Um, you can see all the other ones kind of stacked on each other, and we're standing there, and our tour guide uh, was actually a Jewish woman from D.C., actually. And I remember she's standing there, and she's talking to us about how the Jews would pray at the Western Wall, and they, you know, they call it the Wailing Wall, and they're praying. And the reason they pray there is because it's the closest they think they can get to the Shekinah glory of God. Like, they believe that the the glory of God dwells in those stones underneath where the temple would have rested. And I remember standing there thinking, no, that's, that's not right. If we were dead quiet right now, these stones would cry out to the glory of God. They're not inhabited by the glory of God. I didn't say that because I wanted to respect, you know, being there, and she was our tour guide, and so I was quiet. But... In the temple, the Old Testament was the dwelling place of God. And if you were to go to Israel today and go to the Temple Mount, you would not see the temple. You would see the Dome of the Rock. It was built around 680, 690 A.D. 
And so it is there today. And I think what is so powerful about what Peter is saying is that the glory of God doesn't dwell in the temple anymore. You are the temple of God, being built together into the temple. He says that you are also a priesthood. You are each other's priests, and you are a priest to the world. He's echoing Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6 that say this, Israel, if you listen and covenant with me, you will be my possession out of all the nations, and you will be my kingdom of priests and a holy nation. See, Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. We read about that in Isaiah chapter 42. But Israel messed everything up. We read about that time and time again in the Old Testament. And we don't have time to get into all of the history and the stories. But starting right off, you're all going to be a kingdom of priests. Oh, wait, if you're going to worship a golden calf, maybe we'll just reserve that for the tribe of Levi. And, and, and the story continues, and Israel keeps messing up. And what Peter is saying is that today, you are like Israel. You are not Israel as the church, but we're going to talk about that a little bit more. But you are an active priesthood, and you are in the world, and you need to stand between God and the rest of humanity. In other words, be the living stones and point the world to the living stone. And he says, live sacrificial lives. Paul talks about this time and time again. A popular one is in Romans 12. What I'm saying is that everything we do needs to come out of who we are as the church. And as we jump into verses 6 and 8, uh, Peter grounds his argument in Scripture. I talked a little bit about, you know, when I had to write papers. I'm sure you've written papers. You have to ground yourself, your argument, in something other than just your opinion. And so that's what Peter's doing. He's got some several Old Testament quotes. Uh, he's in Isaiah and the Psalms. And I'm going to let you uh, maybe write it down this week. You can do the work of cross-referencing those and going back and reading them. But the big one is from Isaiah, and he says from Isaiah that Jesus is the cornerstone that God was laying in Zion. So he is the foundation of the church. And for those of you who believe you will find honor and you will not be put to shame is what the CSB says. I think uh, a translation that makes a little bit more sense in my brain, which is crazy. Anyway, um, is that if you believe in him, you will not be disappointed. Your faith isn't empty. And then he, he talks about those who are stuck in unbelief. The foundation stone on which those who believe, that same foundation stone, Jesus, is the same stone that those are stuck in disbelief trip over. Uh, the Jew, for the Jews, Jesus was supposed to be the capstone. Not just the cornerstone, but the capstone, the finishing stone. He was the fulfillment, the answer, the long-awaited Messiah come to save uh, the nation of Israel will pull them out of their sin and be the last sacrifice. And yet, Israel rejects him. And so Jesus becomes what we call the light of the world, the light to the world, the light in the world, to both Jew and Gentile. And here in, uh, well, actually, what it is is that we become the new image bearer to the world. Like, we are Christ's physical representation here on earth. Um, all right, so in verses 6 and 8, there's some serious kind of theological things to debate and talk about. Like if you're familiar with covenant theology, 
or dispensational theology or any of those things. But uh, as much as I would love to talk about it, I'm going to refrain from talking about those things. There's even a hint at double predestination. I got to talk to Scott Booker about that a little bit. Um, But I say this almost every time I preach. If you want to go get a cup of coffee and talk about some of these things that are in the text that we can, you know, debate, I would love to do that. We have to sit six feet apart and wear masks and all that kind of stuff, so it might not be a great conversation, but I would still love to do it. Okay, I want to spend some serious time in verses 9 and 10. I think what verses 9 and 10 are saying is that everything we do, you have to hear that. That is a everything. That's a big word. Everything we do should proclaim the works of God. See, sometimes I think we need to be reminded of who we are. One of my favorite movies is the movie Hook. You guys know that movie? Yeah, a little bit of an older one. It's kind of a sequel of sorts to the Peter Pan stories. Actor Robin Williams, he plays a Peter Pan who left Neverland as a child, grew up in the real world, and he forgets who he is as Peter Pan. And as an adult, he has to go back to Neverland and to save his children. And I don't want to, you know, get into the whole plot and everything, but that's why he has to go back. So he returns to Neverland as a heavier, older, lamer, amnesiatic version of himself. And the Lost Boys have to have to remind him who he is, okay, because he's got to fight Hook. And there's this one scene where Robin Williams, is he's on the ground, he's kneeling, and this one of the, the youngest lost boys comes up to him, and he takes his glasses off, and he's like pushing on his face, and he's trying to flatten out his wrinkles, and suddenly he sees the boy behind the man, and he's like, there you are, Peter. And I love that part because then, they all start like acknowledging that, that he's Peter. And then Peter starts to, it's like the beginning of him remembering who he is. It's an awesome movie. You should watch it. Anyway, um, enough about Peter Pan. I want to start talking about the real Peter uh, from First Peter again. He gets into, the, you like that transition, right? I worked hard on that one. Um, <laughs> in verses 9 and 10, that's exactly what he starts to do. He starts to remind us who we are. He says, you are a chosen race, a chosen people. If you have already tuned me out this morning, I need you to listen and look up here and look at me because I'm about to say something really important that I think comes from Scripture. There's a God in heaven, and he loves us, and he's created us on purpose and for a purpose. That's beautiful. That's what he's saying right here. You are a chosen race, a chosen people. You've been chosen to bring him glory in how you live your life seven days a week. You've been chosen to bring him glory in how you speak, in how you act, in how you treat others. This is motivation for holy living. This is motivation to not fall back into your old sinful ways and desires but to fall forward on the throne of grace when you mess up. This is motivation. Let me me say this. We're living in a time where racial tension is really hot. It's really high. And I, I think the church would do well 
to live into this reality that if we are in Christ, we are one race, one people. And that is, a, that is a delicate subject, that is a complicated subject. But in the context of what we are talking about, if you are in Christ, we are one race united under him. He says that you are a royal priesthood. So again, like Israel, the church is to be a kingdom of priests. We're supposed to be active in the world. A priest is someone who has access to God. Do you know that you have access to God? Do you know that Jesus poured out his blood for the forgiveness of your sins? Do you know that you owe death because of your sin, but Jesus took it? He took your place. He died on the cross as a ransom. You have access to God. So be priests for one another and be priests to the world. See, um, we don't have to go to the temple and wait for the priests to do something because we are the temple and we are the priests. In the first century, when those who would have been receiving this letter uh, throughout the five provinces of Rome, this would have been like mind-blowing because a royal priesthood getting into it, like, like the royal line was in from Judah and the priestly line was from Levi, and those two things don't go together, but they go together in Christ. He is both king and priest. And just like he is the living stone, you are living stones, we're likened to Christ. We're a kingdom of priests. Does that make sense? That's awesome. He says this, you are a holy nation. And so our government, our government, is under Christ's headship. This is a, a, a tough tension to live with. My question is this. How do you live governed by Christ yet remain active in a political landscape that is often shaped by sin and selfish gain? I'm asking. Because I don't know the answer to that. Thankfully, our senior pastor, Frank Taylor, does. So you could all send him an email um, he'll respond eloquently, I'm sure. No, I'm, I'm, I, well, maybe I'm not kidding. I don't know. Maybe he does. You should ask him. But in all seriousness, Peter is likening Israel, church to Israel, the church to Israel. And there's a lot of similarities here, but there's one difference that I want to note. See, Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations, but they were supposed to remain in the land. They were supposed to remain in Israel. So the difference between Israel and the church is you're supposed to go. The Matthew 28 commission, right? Go, be a light to the nations. Share the gospel with every nation, tribe, and tongue. Go be missionaries. You are a people for his possession. This one. You are God's possession. Like we were purchased at the highest price, the price of God, the living stone. His name is Jesus. He's the second person of the Trinity. Trinity. 
the highest price you were purchased. You are his own possession. I tried, and I tried, and I tried to wrap, like, how can I, how, like, the closest I got to, to kind of explaining this is, like, my kids, Declan and Grady. Like, they're mine. They're also Michelle's. But they're my. I'm proud of them, and I love them unconditionally. And I get excited when they, when, when Grady, like, mimics me, and he tells a joke, and I'm like, he's like me. <laughs> It's, it's cool. That's what Peter's saying. You are his possession. You are treasured. And he says all of these things as an identity marker for the church. He lists all these things, and he gives us his purpose statement. So that. You are all these things so that we may proclaim the praises or the mighty deeds of God who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Here at the end of verses 9 and into verse 10, he restates the gospel. He summarizes it. He says, you were in darkness. You were not a people. In other words, you had no identity. You had not received mercy. But in Christ's goodness and his love. You're walking in the light. You get to live in the light. He has made you a people. He has given you identity. He has given you purpose. And you have received immense mercy because we do not deserve this. Uh, Last week, Frank talked about the Pharisees. He talked specifically, uh, specifically about Nicodemus. And he made this point that Nicodemus had spent his whole life doing. Everything was wrapped up in doing, and Jesus just wanted him to be born again. I'm going to take that illustration a step further this week, and I'm going to say, yes, but once you be, you get the grammar right, once you are, once you realize who you are, then you have to do. There is stuff to be done. And so here's a a few practical takeaways from this morning. I would say this, join a local church. Join. Commit. This is not a shameless plug for UBC membership. Maybe you're visiting us this morning and you don't like beards. And you're like, I can't do that. There are so many gospel-centered churches. Join one. Be a member. Commit. Be the church. Because if you are in Christ, then these are your identity markers And the way we live that out is in the context of the local body. That's my argument this morning. Join a local church. Similar to that, be active in your membership. So this is kind of like a step-by-step process. you got to do the first one. Be active in your membership. Church is not a Sunday-only gig. It's not a place. It's not a building. It's who you are. And if all of what we've talked about this morning is true, and I would make the argument that it is, then when you don't involve yourself, you miss out and we miss out. And it's a lose-lose situation and nobody likes those. They're lame So be active in your membership. And then coming out of that, let your activity as the church be your filter 
for what you can and cannot do with the rest of your time. I'm going to say that one again. Let your activity as the church be your filter for what you can and cannot do with the rest of your time. Now, I've had conversations with many of you, and I know there's several of you that have experienced burnout at the hands of volunteer ministry, or maybe church leadership, anybody but me, has taken advantage of your time and your gifts. I'm just kidding. I do that sometimes. But what I'm not saying is enter into an unhealthy, unmonitored relationship with the programs of the church. I'm not saying that. Don't do that. But what I am saying is that if you are in Christ, these are your identity markers, and the way that we live out those is in the context of the local body, which in this case is Uniontown Bible Church. And so here's a little homework assignment I have for us this week. Uh, It's uh, the 168 hours exercise. And I do this with the teens occasionally, so maybe you just roll your eyes, but hey, it works. I like it. So here it is. 168 hours. I need you to take a pen and paper. You don't have to do it now. Do it later. Um, Pen and paper. Go digital. Whatever you want to do. There's 168 hours in a week. 24 times 7. I want you to write that at the top of the page. Okay? And then I want you to write sleeping. And then you can write how many hours you spend sleeping. If you're like me and you have a Fitbit, you know exactly what that is. For me, it's around 7 hours a night times 7, 49 hours. So then I write 49, right? And then you go through your week. You can think back to what you did last week. Or maybe you uh, live this week in light of doing this exercise. Like how much time do I spend doing these things? How much time did I spend scrolling on Instagram this week? What's the eternal value of that? How much time did I spend playing video games this week? What's the eternal value of that? How much time? Whatever, right? Sorry. Negative Nancy up here. 168 hours in a week. That's it. I think when you, when you do this exercise, I, I think what it reveals to us is it reveals to us what our actual filter is for how we spend our time. Oh, caveat I forgot to mention. We're in a global pandemic right now, so your schedule might be a little different than it typically is. So take that into account when you do the exercise. But I'm hoping that this will reveal to us what our filter is. Because what Peter is telling us our filter should be is our identity as the church, as Christ's physical representation on earth. He says, you are all of these things. You are chosen, chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are God's own treasured possession so that you may proclaim the praises and the mighty deeds of the God who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And I had heard this before. And when I was 22, 23, working and living and doing and all that kind of stuff, I didn't live into the reality of who I was as the church. So my biggest prayer is that we're coming out of this 
study in First Peter, and we're learning who we are. That we're sojourners and travelers. This isn't our home. We have purpose. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. Uh, we love you. And we say that we love you even at times we act like we don't. And we say things uh, that we wish we hadn't. Or we do things that we wish we didn't. And yet I read this passage and I am reminded that you have made me like Jesus. You are making me like Jesus. And that is true of everyone who finds their identity in him. I'm asking you to change us, to remind us who we are, to remind us why we're different, to show us that once we realize who we are, show us what to do. Show us how to be one another's priests. Show us how to love like you have loved. God, there's so much to ask out of the context of this passage. So I pray that you would work to your will. We pray this in Jesus' name and in the power of the Spirit. Amen.